Hello and welcome to the ACA Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on online meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to introduce tonight's speaker, Mar from Mount Vernon, Washington. Thanks so much. Hi, my name is Mar. I am an adult child. I identify as non-binary. I prefer they, them pronouns. I'll say a little bit about that in my share. I want to say thank you to those of you who are, are here sharing this experience with me. I, uh, I'm one of those people that doesn't prepare before I speak because I'm always surprised by what comes out of my mouth, no matter how prepared I am. So I, I go with what comes and I hope that something I say today is helpful to somebody who's listening. Um, I started ACA in San Francisco in the mid 90, uh, mid 80s, excuse me, 1980s. And I, I started meetings um, at a time when I couldn't tell the difference between the Al-Anon meetings with an ACA focus and the adult children of alcoholics meetings that had separate literature. I remember noticing it, but I couldn't tell you what made them different. Um, so I stuck with Al-Anon um, all the way through until now. Um, but I, I thought that by working an Al-Anon program and including the literature that had an adult child focus, that I was getting all that I needed to heal from the effects of my childhood. Um, until five years ago, when my Al-Anon sponsor moved to a place where ACA as a separate program was thriving, and my Al-Anon sponsor attracted me into the greater ACA fellowship and introduced me to this ter terrific literature. She suggested that I get the yellow book and start working the steps of ACA that way. And I did not come willingly, I'll just say. I was a super snob about thinking that I knew how to work these steps. After 30 years of practice, I thought I knew something. And um, I'm not particularly proud of this now to admit that um, I was so reluctant to um, learn something new and to open myself to the possibility of, of a new spiritual awakening. So um, I was... I definitely was curious and I noticed when I started coming to meetings, I heard that part that said, you know, if you think you can handle what comes up at six consecutive meetings. And I, I realized that that was a little bit nerve wracking. Like, do I, can I handle what comes up at six consecutive meetings? And I noticed that I had trouble getting to six consecutive meetings. There was always something that was diverting my path. Um, that I thought I needed to do instead. So it actually took me several months from the time I started going to ACA meetings before I got to six in a row. And I count my ACA start date in um, July, end of July, July 24th, 2016. And um, I, I, I will, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the good news before I, I go back and explain how I got here, um, which is that I, I started working 
the 12 steps of ACA using the yellow book with a group of people. And we, we did it in one year. And I discovered as a result of that, that that is way too fast for me. I couldn't keep up with my feelings. I couldn't go deep. So we started again. And most of us did it a second time through and it took us much, much longer. And then we also stayed together and did the laundry list workbook and completed that. And now we are going through the steps again. And um, I can say that the, the bonds that I have grown with the people I have gotten close to by meeting weekly and sharing in depth, thanks to the ACA literature, is unlike anything I've experienced before in recovery or in my life. There is something about really saying what it was like and listening to what it was like for others and connecting the dots with this, um, this spiritual path that is um, really opening me to a whole new experience that I'm grateful for. So, so now I'll say what motivated me to, 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 to do the work. And um, I, I have a complicated family tree. First of all, I have several. So for those of you who may have used the genogram in the, um, in the yellow book on page 36, um, you'll, you'll recognize that there's this way to, to draw our parents all in a line and, and then our siblings, our grandparents, there's a way to make it look fairly simple as a diagram. In my case, I have adoptive parents, step parents, birth parents, and step parents with my birth parents. And I was, I was relinquished for adoption in 1968 and then adopted a few months later and, and then re reunited with my birth family and have been in, in relationship with them for the last 31 years. And the way that I've come to understand how I came into the world and who made decisions about where I belonged and when my siblings came came into my life and how old everyone was when we met and different tragedies and secrets have made just simply knowing my place in, in my family challenging to, to even be able to describe. So what I started with was knowing that I had a mom, a dad, and a brother. They were related. They had a daughter and sister who died before I was adopted. That girl was seven when she died. My mom, dad, and brother were brokenhearted when I met them. And when I was growing up, the first 10 years of my life, they did not get the, the help that they needed for their grief. I witnessed drinking as a problem. I learned that drinking was a factor in my parents ultimately splitting up and divorcing. 
I saw my brother turning to, to drugs and alcohol. And there were a lot of other problems as well. There were, like I said, many secrets. There were other, other women in the case of my father. And subsequently, he married someone he had been secretly involved with, perhaps since I was adopted. I don't really know. And she is now a step-parent. There were feelings we didn't talk about that I have subsequently learned are very common that many of us feel. And it has taken me years to identify what my feelings were related to each of the different relationships I had in my family. Many of the most difficult feelings I've faced have been in relationships where the strengths of the relationship were also the most painful burdens. An example is I had a very close relationship with my adoptive grandmother and she was the safest person for me very often. When I fell and sprained my ankle and broke my ankle, which I did repeatedly over my the years of my childhood and into my adult life. And when I went away to camp and when I fell in love and, and um, there were, there were so many ways I could confide in her. And she introduced me to my very first sense of connection with a higher power. She pointed to her heart and she had me point to my heart. And she said, the feeling of warmth in your heart is, is the presence of, of God. That's something that I'm not even sure she did for anyone else in my family or if anyone else felt that or talked about that. Um, But it's an example of something I had with her that was unique and I could count on it. But she came and went very intermittently throughout my um, childhood because she, she wasn't always, she was not always there. And I, when, when we were separated, we would come together and be separated again and again and again the wound of my um, feeling unprotected when she wasn't there was reopened. And it was connected to the wound of having lost my original family and um, the wound of my, my dad being um, barely there and then ultimately leaving. And a lot that went wrong with my brother. Um, he was not a safe person for me when I was little and him ultimately um, not being safe for anyone, for himself, for me, or for anyone. And he was, he was kicked out and he, he was, I didn't think he was even going to make it for a while. Um, so, so there was this like, uh, what can I say? It was like, there was this warmth and closeness and trust and love that I had with my grandmother, but it was like, it was also constantly being ripped open with different different um, minor losses or major losses. And then as I started to come into my um, gender identity and sexual orientation, I discovered in her a great deal of fear of my nature. And she was the person who most viscerally reacted negatively and was um, rejecting in a way that, that was terrifying to me. So my 
another example is I, um, I had a real interest in, and I was very drawn to spirituality and I was given many different uh, opportunities to connect with spirituality, but it was very, very confusing. I went to one religious um, experience in one part of my life and another religious experience in another part of my life with no understanding of how, how they interacted or what it meant that I came from, for instance, I knew I had been born into a, a Catholic family and I was adopted into a Jewish family and I didn't know how to um, resolve how far apart these two worlds were, how, the, the theology, but also the, um, the communities. And um, I had a real pain in my heart around um, wounding that had happened to me um, you know, unsupervised, um, I could call it neglect. I could call it, um, even emotional abuse now, now that I understand what happens when children, um, are left unattended and unsafe situations, um, where I did, I wanted to be able to turn to a safe adult and one after another, the adults that I, I, knew to be, for instance, um, people of faith who were in leadership positions were, um, um, I, I discovered to be accused of clergy abuse. I'll, I'll put it that way. And I, I found myself um, finding one after another person untrustworthy and, and in direct proportion, my shame was growing. And I now look at this as like a, um, a um, what shall we call this, but like a, a crack or a um, division, a place of division in my heart where I could talk to some people about some of it and other people about another of it, but I was terribly afraid of bringing myself together and um, confiding in anyone about all that was happening for me, especially with regard to shame. So I myself, I did um, seek uh, relief in alcohol and drugs. And I also sought relief in alcoholics and drug addicts. I, I ultimately found my way very, very young into the rooms of recovery. My, my first love in high school was a member of Alateen. Um, her mom was, got sober in AA and I consider myself just plain lucky that I, I found out that there is this, this thing called sobriety. And it was pretty obvious to me pretty quickly that sobriety was a better option than drunkenness. And I myself, uh, became, depressed and ultimately was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and found that both drugs and alcohol made me much, much worse. Um, and I, I found myself at that dead end street inside where I felt, I felt hopeless and I made the decision to seek recovery instead of um, ending my life. Um, and I knew where to go 
thanks to the people who had already introduced me to 12-step meetings. So I, I found myself in, I was in love with a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and we ended up uh, moving into a, a building in the Tenderloin in San Francisco that was next door to a meeting hall that had meetings five, five times a day on average. Total luck. Um, I mean, of course, I can also say looking back that this is a blessing and I, I, I have felt over the years as though it's also it's grace. Um, and I, I was so relieved that there was a place I could go and I didn't have to try very hard to just sit and listen and open myself to a different way of life than the one that I was introduced to growing up in my, in my situation. Um, a few years into working steps in both AA and Al-Anon, I met my birth family. And let me just say that at that point, I had already been to ACA and I was introduced to a way of looking at dysfunctional family and um, alcoholic family, where I came to see that my, my parents were in the same boat as me. We all were wounded and we had all gotten here the same way, that someone harmed each of us and that we, we had each learned in some way to survive in a way that um, showed us how to harm other people. And I began to see that survival strategies that, that harm me and can hurt, harm you are, are, um, are um, changeable. And I don't have to repeat the same pattern. And, and I can also get additional help when needed. And some of that additional help that I sought was um, theological and uh, community um, because I had such a need outside the rooms to feel like I understood what it meant to be, to be um, of so many different cultures that I didn't understand how they could possibly uh, coexist within me. So um, I just, I mentioned that because in, in coming to understand this place between me where I have felt as though cut in half, um, I have over and over and over again in recovery come to this place where I have felt like, well, I can apply the program in this way, or I could apply the program in this way, but really I have to apply it in both ways in order to get the full experience, which, which is one of the things that has made it such a relief to come to ACA and to see the laundry list traits and the other laundry list traits and to realize, of course, I'm a product of parents who survived in two different ways. One of them was much more like an alcoholic. One of them was much more like the non-alcoholic or para-alcoholic. And I have learned both. I can do both well with or without a drink. And um, if I'm not really um, learning to become my own loving parent and to parent myself better, essentially, any of my feelings today that are vulnerable and um, especially the deep feelings of grief that can come up under, or under great stress, I can end up 
reenacting and treating myself the way my parents did and feeling the same way it did when I was a kid. So um, I ultimately found in when I reunited with my birth parents and I, I discovered this whole family full of people that look, that look like me and in many ways feel like me, act like me, but they had stories that, that went together with a lifetime that didn't include me. I, I, one of the things that I, I discovered is, first of all, a relief of loneliness that I, I didn't even know how to describe that had always been there, that I, I had had a yearning for who are my people. And, and after a while of getting to know them, I also grew to have a new appreciation for the parents and sibling and all the people I had known growing up, because even though these other people are my people, they weren't there when I was a child and they don't have those stories. They don't know me the way that I was as a child. And it gave me a new appreciation of my childhood, my ethnicity, my um, just my family stories and um, and and my faith. Because I don't know if I'd been raised in that family, if I would have ended up in the faith tradition I'm in. So, you know, it's been, that's been a mixed blessing and there's been a lot to sift through. It's taken years, it's taken decades, but one of the most important things that's come through that is an identification that I have with my birth father in particular. He is someone who had many of the feelings I did growing up, um, was attracted to drugs and alcohol and also um, dealt with having bipolar disorder and 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 he had a, a yearning for wholeness and a and and he was sober when I met him. We were both sober when we met. And uh, in getting to know each other, I began to see myself in him and him in me in ways that helped me to understand that deep place in me where I'd felt broken and where I'd felt such deep shame. He felt those feelings too, and he had the ability to articulate them with me. And I began to see a way into my um, envisioning for myself, a, a um, how do I say this? Almost like making a linkage between who he is today and who I was as a child so that I could see myself becoming a parent to myself, a loving parent to myself like him. I borrow from him ways of treating myself that can be an improvement upon how I have learned to talk to myself simply by virtue of the fact that there are some things of who I am that are more biologically driven. And I don't blame my adoptive parents for not having those ways of understanding me. It's, it's a fact. Some, some things about I, identity are connected to biology, I found. But also that he has this strong yearning for recovery like I do that's made us like spiritual siblings in a way, even though he's 20 years my, my senior, we relate very much like peers. So I wanted to say about that, that that has been so useful to me in particular in this past year, because I have a nephew on the other side of my family, my, my birth mother's side of the family, who just died of an overdose a year ago, a year ago at age 16. And as I got to know that kid, I saw in him feelings of my own from when I was growing up. And then I watched him 
ultimately lose his life. And I have felt so many feelings of loss about, you know, the children who, who don't make it and, and the child in me that was, that was afraid I wasn't going to make it. It's brought up a kind of grief in me. Like I haven't been able to reach in any other way until now. And just realizing in the process of grieving, what are the qualities in that young person's life that I can identify with and that I can um, savor and grow in myself, in his memory, in order to be a person who remembers him in my recovery. He had two years of recovery, of, of uh, a beginning in recovery, and that's all, you know, and I get to look at myself, my own recovery and say, how grateful I am that I am um, working with the, uh, the amount of recovery I have and that I have somehow had the luck and the blessing and the grace to be able to stay in recovery. Um, and it's, it's just seeing the addict of the next generation and the addict of the previous generation has helped me to see myself in the middle as a person who um, I'm, I'm walking my walk to the best of my ability in my generation with my siblings and um, being hopefully being an example of recovery um, if anyone else seeks it. So between meeting my birth parents and now I, I moved to Washington and I developed a relationship with a friend of mine who was my, my best friend for the first seven years of my uh, young adulthood when I left home and we had a falling out and then um, we uh, reunited again uh, 14 years ago and we've been a couple for the last 14 years and in this relationship what I'm what I'm learning about myself is that I I have experienced and, and this is why I wanted to talk about gender a little bit I have experienced the two sides of my nature having this, this sense of, of um, being divided in some way between um, different, different parts of me, whether it be the laundry lists or, or gender or my, my faith traditions uh, and, and cultures. Um, I, I have, it's like I have two natures. And in this relationship, I have felt myself to be um, both um, a friend from when we knew each other as friends for the first seven years and now as partners for the last 14. And I'm, I'm bringing together a way to see myself as someone who does not um, require a romantic relationship to divide me um, and somebody who can choose to, to have a, a romantic relationship um, because I am able to choose it not to, not to try to complete myself. Um, and this has been a day at a time. Um, in between, I also survived a hate crime shooting in the workplace. And in the process of um, having an adulthood trauma, I've also come more to understand the childhood trauma because the two have, have um, in a way been too much in a particular way, it's just too much pain, and it has 
it has um, inspired me to go deeper and to learn more about how to ground, how to be safe in myself and um, how to come to terms with having dissociated to survive. I absolutely love about the ACA literature that we have the ability to read about dissociation, talk about PTSD. It's all throughout our literature and we're encouraged to get the help we need in order to be able to make the most of our step work. So, um, so that's, that's been some of the, the most difficult work that I, I have come into um, as a result of reaching this, this stage in my recovery. So, so now I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how the steps have introduced me to my inner child. And um, part of my purpose in talking about myself is being non-binary and using they, them pronouns. In case there's anyone here who doesn't know, um, there are some people who experience ourselves as, as something different than the gender we knew ourselves to have when we were growing up. And in my case, I was assumed to be female. I um, I was literally adopted to fill the vacancy of the girl that had been their biological child before me. Um, and I didn't quite feel like I fit entirely as a girl. I, I had my first concerns that I was a boy at age four. And in ACA, the way I come to see it is that um, when I get in touch with inner child feelings or inner uh, adolescent feelings, I, I make room for the possibility that any of these feelings could be connected to a boy or girl or non-binary um, mix of the two, which, whichever, whichever gender comes forward, I attempt to make room for this. Um, I have several family members who have uh, non-binary gender and I have learned from the next generation how to appreciate that, that this, is, um, this is part of how I experience my my feelings. And so when I first started to discover that I had more than one sense of, of an identity with my inner child, I was very uncomfortable. I'll just be real forward with, with you all. I was very uncomfortable with this. I, I found it annoying. I found it um, distressing. Um, I had a lot of uncomfortable reactions to it. And um, I, it, so I met somebody who suggested that I try to have a conversation with the feelings that I was running into. And it was on the topic of, uh, I was having difficulty uh, making ends meet financially. I was, I was struggling to uh, keep track of how much I was spending. And I felt like there was something going on with my inner child having to do with finances. And this is one of the things that I discovered through all the work I'd done about having come from poverty before, thank you, I see the time, um, having come from poverty before I was adopted, having been adopted into a financially secure family, and then um, ideas I'd had over time about what does it mean to have come from some family that was struggling, what does it mean to struggle financially, um, I had a lot of thoughts and feelings about about financial struggle as a kid. And what I started to discover is that I was having a, a, an, a childhood feeling 
associated with um, keeping the information about the numbers from me in terms of the adult me. And it took a while to realize it, but I, it was suggested to me to have a conversation back and forth. I didn't do it with the non-dominant hand. What I did is I did it in um, in my journal where I I spoke, I offered a loving commentary to the <laughs> to the other aspect of myself, and I I just attempted to open my mind and invite forward some kind of response from a part of me that I felt was less conscious, that was kind of getting in the way of me taking care of a financial matter. Anyway, I, I offered something in the way of, um, you know, initiating the conversation. And then I responded. And what, what came out in this exchange that was so surprising to me that let me know that there really was something to this was the the child part of me that I got in touch with that I responded with was this phrase, I like the shark. And I'm going to show you, I realize this is not going to be very good listening for the podcast, but I'm going to show you, I had purchased this very silly looking, what I would say is not very shark-like stuffed animal, but it had just really jumped out at me when I saw it in the grocery store. It was down by my hip level. And I just almost instinctively grabbed it out of this, the, the, where it was, it was $2. (laughs) I don't know what it was, but it was irrational. What drew me to this thing. But, but as I'm talking about the money, I'm literally getting these words. I like the shark, which has become very funny in my my inner child work is that, you know, I, I cannot predict what it's going to be. That's going to create the connection on the inside. That's going to make it possible for me to get movement with some of these parts of myself that have been really cut off from me. (sighs) But that, that was a huge one. Another thing that I was doing that when I was growing up, that was a survival skill that I discovered was um, listening to such a degree. I, I have developed the art of listening and I, I really le- let people put their burdens on me. And this, this is not a bad thing. It, it was painful and I was too young for the burden I was taking on, but I, I had the experience of listening and listening and listening to the point where listening was defining me. And I was as if playing dead in my own life because I was the lost child. I was not telling anybody how much pain I was really in. And I, I use um, the opossum as uh, an example to me of someone Incidentally, I happen to think an opossum is a very lovely creature. I realize there are those who who uh, think otherwise, but I use the opossum as a reminder to me of playing dead and inviting myself to to speak and to not only listen and to not only make room for the burdens of others, but also to to let out what is the burden and to um, to be 
um, to be vocal and to be alive, which is all it, which is, it is possible to, uh, for me, and it's becoming more and more possible for me to, to come out with my, um, the lot, what was lost that is now, um, that I am now, now finding. What's so interesting is that that place in me that I have experienced as being like a, um, a break is becoming more and more. It's, it's a place of, of, of silencing a, a certain kind of silencing that it was doing of myself where I, I now can begin to come, come, uh, come into the open. So that was something I wanted to share today is that it's, it's, it's as though I am, I am facing the, the, um, when it comes to the don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, I am coming into the talk, trust, feel, and it's, it sometimes is quite loud. And the, the loudness is something that I'm just now learning to calibrate and learning to put into a place that's safe enough that will allow me to, that in a way that's sustainable. And I didn't have the skills and I didn't have the safety net and I didn't have the higher power, the connection with the higher power that I just love Tony A's 12 steps. And I'm so glad that somebody read them today that, that, that I can give myself this unconditional love that comes from the, the one I call God. And um, it is in such a way where I don't have to choose between one or the other side of me. Both are intrinsically allowed. So um, I've had the wonderful experience of starting a meeting called From Hurting to Healing to Helping. I love that line from our solution. Um, I've had the wonderful experience of offering myself to be a sponsor, to listen to others as they share their step work um, out of the out of the yellow book. Um, I've had the wonderful experience of offering myself to be a liaison to encourage others to find sponsors. Um, to, and I've been a temporary sponsor while people are in the process of seeking their own yellow book study group or their own sponsor. And um, I get a lot of joy from those things. Um, in my experience, um, my hesitance about making myself available to sponsor took a very long time to overcome. I went 10 years before I sponsored anyone in my early recovery. And what I found is what took so long is I thought that I had to do something. And what I have found is the secret is I'm not doing something. I'm witnessing and I'm sharing the experience that really comes naturally from us applying what's in the literature and the program to our daily lives. So with that, um, I say thank you for sharing this wonderful program with me. And I look forward to maybe getting to meet you all in person someday. Thank you, Mar. Thank, thank you, you, Mar. Mar. You bet. Thank you, Mar. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark.